Hello, everyone. This is part two of my interview with Michael Thompson from the Aryan Brotherhood alongside my friend and co-host, Sean Atwood. If you haven't already checked out, go back to last week's episode, part one, to hear Michael talking about the way that uh, prisoners were set up to fight each other as as uh, the guards placed bets and and killed them if it got too violent absolutely awful awful stuff this second episode we go more into the philosophy of the Aryan Brotherhood and sort of disagree a little bit about what it might have been and and Michael sort of tries to I suppose he whitewashes it a little bit uh, by suggesting it was never meant to be a racist organization Uh, and I don't want to be that simplistic guy who just goes well the clues in the name the Aryan Brotherhood because I know that things are more complicated and I know that in prison if you are I guess they were a minority at that point I I understand all the points he's saying but I I would also maybe like I don't know I, I feel like there's a bit more to it than that and there probably is a bit of you know some racism in the Aryan Brotherhood at least you would think anyway see what you guys think um that's it stay curious be interested and I was just so happy to get to have this chat thank you so much to Sean Atwood go follow him on YouTube and audio podcasts and stuff and thank you to Michael Thompson as well for for sitting down and doing this with us for two hours it was a really really enlightening fascinating experience that I won't soon forget lots of fascinating episodes coming up but now you're on the edge once more of the Aryan Brotherhood with Sean Atwood and Michael Thompson Andrew is Jewish, and I was telling him, you know, earlier on because he, he stepped up um, to do this at the last minute, and I was telling him, you know, this is the found one of the founders of the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang, who's now become this neo-Nazi entity that's spread across the entire of America, a lot of murder, violence, mayhem, and neo-Nazi principles, but. In the beginning, the philosophy was completely different, and one of the other founders was Jewish. Could you explain mm-hmm. to Andrew how that came about? Yeah, you want to remember that back when at the inception of these the, of these groups, um, it was about controlling your resources, and uh, that was true of the Aryan Brotherhood and and uh, the Mexican Mafia and and all the others. Yeah, uh, the really the only ones that had a manifesto, if you will, and it was a communist manifesto at that was. Um, the Black Panthers and the Black Guerrilla family. But um, as the groups were formed, it was meant to control their resources. And um, that's something that people don't often think about, that the prison environment, as a controlled environment, when you have populations from 3,000 to 5,000 prisoners, represent a small city. So there are resources within that. And that's the essence of organized crime. You know, you provide a product or a service and you receive compensation for that. So it's a matter of generating revenues and then utilizing those revenues toward developing the infrastructure of the organization. And so it isn't to say that you didn't have um, originally with the Aryan Brotherhood uh, racists. You did. Um, I can't recall. I've, I've thought a lot about it. Anybody that had a swastika on them, you know, I knew members of the Hells Angels who were also members of the Aryan Brotherhood who had swastikas. Um, but the idea of racism, for the sake of racism, was not a tenet that the Aryan Brotherhood subscribed to. It had no value. Um, it's only as they began to prosper, if you will, and um, take on other elements of crime, 
uh, within the organized crime community and upholding that, um, that they began to adopt a privileged attitude, um, which oftentimes is referred to as white supremacy. You know, privilege comes in many, many different forms among um, a multitude of ethnicities. But the fact of the matter is that privilege in the context of white people is typically referred to as white supremacy, and I would agree with that. Um, but uh, in the case of the Aryan Brotherhood, T.D. Bingham is one of the founders of the Aryan Brotherhood, and uh, he was Jewish, and um, you know wore the Star of David tattooed on his body with pride. And um, it was actually something that I asked him about because it seemed a contradiction to me, because. Um, you know, my perception of the Aryan Brotherhood when I was recruited into it was that of, well, are these, you know, Nazis? Um, are these white supremacists? And it was actually four members of the Native American community who were members of the Aryan Brotherhood who explained to me that that was not the case. That, um, you know, the way they explained it to me was that you know, they lived better in prison than they ever did on the reservation. And that resonated with me. I understood that. But going back to TD, I mean, I had asked him when he attempted to recruit me because I declined the offer to join the Aryan Brotherhood initially. Um, and uh, I was looking at the Star of David, understanding, I mean, I attended synagogue when I was a youngster, so I understood what a Star of David was and what it represented. Um and he saw me looking at it, and he said, yeah, that's right, I'm Jewish and proud of it. He says, but I'm not a practicing Jew is the way he referred to it. I'm not quite sure what that means, um, but I do know that his mother is Jewish, and, um, and that uh, T.D. is Jewish, and he wasn't the only one. I mean, Tommy Silverstein, um, they say, well, you know, Tommy Silverstein was adopted, and, you know, it's like me. People say, well, uh, he's not Native American, and you know, whether or not I am or am not is irrelevant. The fact is, I was raised Native. You know, in the case of Tommy Silverstein and T.D. Bingham and others, they were raised Jewish. And so that's what they subscribe to associated with that. You know, you have your Orthodox Jews, as Andrew will know, and then you get into a more contemporary aspect where they're a little more liberal. Uh, as it relates to the Torah and otherwise. I suppose, though, um, with the name Aryan, it's a reference to the ethnicity and blood. So if you were um, adopted as a, a Jewish person who's adopted, you, you don't have that sort of the race. You're still, you're still technically Aryan. So was that, mm -hmm. I mean, what, what was the importance of the name Aryan? If it, if I, it, think, I mean, yeah. go on, sorry. Yeah, no, it's all right. It's, it's a great question. You know, it's like uh, Mexican. It's like black. Uh, you have Black Panthers, Black Gorilla family. You have the Mexican Mafia. You have the Italian Mafia. So Aryan is just a reference, you know, to not necessarily Caucasian, but European, you know, in that context. Because you had uh, members who were Samoan, Native American, um, Filipino, um, people of color. But nonetheless, they were part of the Aryan Brotherhood. So initially with the founding members, um, the Aryan aspect was associated with the Shamrock. And the Shamrock, of course, was associated with Ireland. So you have that distinction in that conjunction. When you get into the context of um, Aryan as it relates to Judaism, 
then you're talking about something entirely different, primarily because of uh, the history of the Holocaust and previously. I mean, as you well know, throughout the history of the Jews, they've been persecuted um, all the way back to biblical times. So mm. the idea of Aryan, and, 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 and interestingly enough, Aryan is a Middle Eastern term. Um, you know, that's where it comes from, is the Middle East. So it's, it's not a Euro European term in that context. As you well know, Andrew, the swastika um, is on many synagogues, um, but it has an entirely different meaning. So it was how that symbolism was adopted by Hitler and his nationalist party, the Nazis. And that's usually the reference point that uh, we see today as it relates to the swastika. With, amongst the Native American community, it's a sun wheel, you know, mm -hmm. and represents movement and power as it relates to that movement. So, you know, it depends on who you ask. And um, but that's not what it—that's not what it means for the Aryan Brotherhood, though, is it? it? You know. Well, it's a great question. I can't answer the question because I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. if the swastika has meaning to the Aryan Brotherhood today, then that's beyond my purview of experience. All I know is that when I was a member, it had no value. The shamrock had value. Now, you would oftentimes within that shamrock see the three sixes, the Antichrist, the Beast. But that represented more anti-establishment than anything else. It was said that St. Patrick taught the Trinity to the Irish through the use of the shamrock. So given that, the 666 symbolism was incorporated to show anti-establishment. And if the Aryan Brotherhood was anything, it was anti-establishment. Hmm. And if it represented anything, it was anti-establishment. Outlaw, not just outlier, but outlaw in that context. But you had other organizations like neo-Nazis who embraced, uh, you know, the swastika and, and uh, Nazism and neo-Nazism and, and, and all of that portends, but they were actually enemies of the Aryan Brotherhood. And um, I went to battle with them many times, um, not because of their manifesto as it relates to that neo-Nazism, but because for the most part, they were cowards. And so they would talk out the side of their neck. Um, about you know med, mud people and and um, all these references to um, other ethnicities. Yet, when the battle was about to begin, as a result of the way that they were talking to these other groups, they were nowhere to be found. So they placed the rest of the white population in jeopardy with these other ethnicities. As a result, and oftentimes were stabbed as a result. John Abbott and I were talking about that when we did our interview. And um, it goes right to the heart of what we're talking about, um, the idea of Nazism. So, Michael, as the philosophy of the Aryan Brotherhood changed over the years then, did the attitude towards the Jewish founders such as T.D. Bingham change? Yeah, you won't see the attitude um, as it relates to um, Jews. Um, the issue was more blacks. Um, than anything else as it relates to white supremacy. So the primary enemy of the Aryan Brotherhood became blacks. And in truth, that was the case when I was a member. So the primary enemy was the Black Panthers, who was the first to attempt to recruit me. And then when I declined, I became an enemy. I wasn't even a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. And then, but when I did become a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, my primary enemy was the Black Gorilla family. And um, again, um, Who's to say what racism is? You know, I, I know a number of uh, members of the Black Gorilla family who 
I encountered late in later years who explained to me their hatred for me. Um, you know, and what that stemmed from um, in their mind. Um, so, you know, I've heard people make the argument, well, you know, the whites were no less racist than the blacks. Mm, it doesn't really work like that. Not in my mind. Um, because we're talking about oppression and the subjugation of an ethnicity or a race to whites in general. And the potential hatred that occurs as a result of that. Um, you need only go into the inner cities today uh, to discover that, you know, the, the idea of racism, it's one of those subjects that, again, needs to be discussed in more detail, um, more openly, because it still exists in this country. Um, there has a lot that that's been done. But if you just look at something as simple as Black Lives Matter, you know, and the objection to that, I heard people say, well, all lives matter. Well, of course they do. You see, but not all ethnicities have been subjugated to another race, the way the blacks have been in this country, through slavery. And again, that's an oversimplification. It's not something that I can imagine. I've been the subject of racism myself because of my fair features, but by Native Americans, not blacks. I've had blacks try to kill me because of my fair features. But I never looked at that as racism on their part. You see, I don't think the same can be said when you're taking a white person who's taking a position against blacks because they're black. In other words, because they're perceived as inferior or otherwise um, not worthy as human beings. And um, that's not a subtle distinction, nor should it be. I get you spoke before about fear uh, shaping mm -hmm. people in prisons and how people behave and stuff, and I suppose that also shapes prejudices. And mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, would would the young Michael Thompson have held um, such nuanced beliefs about race, or or, or did you hold prejudices um, about black people, for example? No, certainly not. Um, first of all, I didn't have the intellectual aptitude. Um, whether academically or otherwise, uh, to make that distinction. It would be um, very disingenuous on my part to suggest that I did. Um, you know, I didn't even understand, for instance, when Yogi Pinnell attempted to recruit me into the Black Panthers, he engaged in this, essentially, what was a diatribe on, on his communist manifesto. And I understood none of it. I didn't have an inkling. I didn't have a clue of what communism was. I, the only factor that entered into my mind relative to that is I once did spring roundup with an actor called John Wayne uh, out on Irvine Ranch. And he used to lament about communism. I mean, he, he was <laughs> not only was he a, a real American, but he, he despised communism. So that was my only reference point. And I think for any of us, that's what's required or should be required when we contemplate these subjects is what's your reference point? Well, my only reference point at that time when Yogi confronted me with his communist manifesto was what John Wayne had told me, communism is bad. And that's actually what I told Yogi, and that's why I declined. But I did not understand communism, um, you know, Engels, Marx, none of it. Mm. You know, Stalin, Lenin, didn't have a clue. Mao, 
But one of the ways that I actually learned how to read, because I couldn't read or write when I went to prison, was that I acquired Mao's Little Red Book, because the Black Panthers and the BGF used to read it out loud on the tier every night. And so I would follow along in the book. And that actually helped me learn how to read. Now, I didn't comprehend the damn thing of what was being read. You know, I'm dyslexic. And so comprehension is another problem. So with like most dyslexics, I have to develop my own study protocol toward um, comprehension. And uh, that's true to this day. But no, to answer your question, Andrew, uh, the idea of uh, prejudice or racism, uh, first and foremost, it's not something that my elder would have tolerated um, on any level. Um, so his advocacy uh, to me was um, to be a human being and to be the best human being that I could possibly be. Of course, as a youngster, um, I don't know how much of that settled with me. I'd like to think that um, some of what I believe today is an offshoot of uh, what my elder taught me. Do you think, Michael, if Andrew Gold ended up in the California state prison system, he would be better off withholding his Jewish um, history and just identifying with the woods? No, I don't. Um, you have a number of, of uh, great programs, religious programs, um, where um, individuals who are Jewish are allowed to attend um, synagogue, if you will. Um, it's actually a chapel, but they have uh, a rabbi, and uh, every institution has a rabbi. And mm -hmm. I mean, they don't have a cantor, but uh, they have um, all the ceremonies associated with Judaism. Uh, you know, in that context, they have a special diet um, that um, is kosher that they receive. Um, there's some resentment over that because it's the best food in the joint. Um, but that food is all donated by the Jewish community. And um, but no, I don't think that uh, he should do that. Uh, should that occur? And um, I hope it never does, Andrew. Um, I wouldn't last two minutes. Well, I'd be dead before I walk in. I'd trip I, I over my own feet and bang my head. That'd be yeah, it. Yeah, you would be surprised. It, uh, you know, your survival instinct takes over, mm. and um, so you might be surprised at, at how you would respond to that. But mm. the, the practice of uh, your religion um, would be encouraged. And sitting here right now, I would encourage you or anybody else. Um, to engage that. Um, I think that's the greatest value uh, of incarceration. One of the greatest values of incarceration was is the opportunity to engage uh, your spirituality, your religion, uh, and education. And the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation has evolved by leaps and bounds in that context. Uh, not only as it relates to officer training and uh, their code of ethics, um, but the programs that they now offer inmates, I mean, a lot, a lot more needs to be done. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah. But a lot of judicial reform has occurred in this state. Um, the Youthful Offender Act, the Elder Offender Act. I mean, the District Attorneys Association is attempting to repeal all that. And that's a, mm, an issue for another time, perhaps another subject. But the fact of the matter is, is that 
um, they now have programs available in prison that assist inmates to prepare uh, for when they are released. Most of that applies to the determinate term sentencing. That's, that's prisoners who have a determinate term that they're going to serve and then they're released. So they have the opportunity to educate themselves, to engage in, in um, self-help programming, and to engage in religious activities. And um, those have extraordinary value towards retaining um, and evolving in one's humanity. Just going back to the formation of the Aryan Brotherhood, um, mm -hmm. you were saying before that back at the time you didn't have, you, you weren't sort of learned enough to understand some of the uh, ideas around prejudice and race and things. Is mm -hmm. it possible that uh, perhaps some of the other people with whom you formed the group did have those kinds of bad intentions? Because it does. I, I'm just thinking of people listening and, and, and viewing, and they, they're seeing like, okay, it's called the Aryan Brotherhood. Um, it's got a swastika. I know you were saying that in your mind, it didn't mean those things, but then also looking at where the group's gone now as well, it's it's hard not to think it must, at least somebody involved in its formation had racist views. Oh yeah, there's a vast distinction to be made between then in the 70s and now. Um, and back then, you didn't have the swastika associated with the Aryan Brotherhood. You do now. Right. You actually see okay. it within the shamrock. Right. See? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a contemporary phenomenon uh, that's based on hatred, um, uh, simply put. Um, that's what it comes to. The opportunity to um, capitalize um, upon a situation. Uh, to I mean, it's no different than the hate groups do that aren't in prison, you know, that are... are um, immersed in our societies, you know, these hate groups, you know, uh, how they function and why they function. Uh, it's no different for the Aryan Brotherhood, you know, the idea of white supremacy, you know, and again, that's something that um, needs to be delved into deeper in understanding that hatred and where that hatred comes from, because I'm of the opinion that it comes from fear. Yeah. And, um, you know, fear is at the root of it. Um, you know, of course, the other, I said the other side of that is love. You know, that isn't to say that they're in juxtaposition to each other. They're not. One does not equate to the other. It's not an either or. It's not black and white. But I am uh, unashamedly an advocate for love. And what that means is it relates to our humanity. And, you know, that's, that's a subject that can be discussed um, a lot. Um, as can hate. But I think these are conversations that need to happen. And, um, you know, we need, I see a lot of these so-called prison channels, you know, that they're advocating this, this idea of, of, you know, what prison is like. And, and that's okay, because it educates the public toward understanding, you know, what it is to be human from the outside looking in. You see that idea of compassion, you know, for individuals who have committed crimes, I'm not saying that there isn't a need for crime, uh, for punishment as it relates to the crime, but Europe is far ahead of the United States in, in that capacity. You know, um, United States is improving, but they have a long way to go. Whoever that individual was way back in the beginning that determined that it was okay to build a cell and put bars on the front and to house a human being in that cage had something wrong with him in my by my estimation because in my opinion the worst thing that you can possibly do 
is put a human being in a cage. Now, I spent 45 years in a cage. I'm speaking from experience. I know the impact it had upon me. I know the issues that I'm still dealing with as a result of that. You see, in my pursuit of my own humanity. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts, and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. So you recommended that Andrew should embrace his religion then. Let's assume that he's going in on a drugs case into the mm -hmm. California state prison system. What prison survival advice would you give him? It's his first time offense. He has no clue what he's getting into. What, what, what advice would you give him to try and help him safeguard himself? Well, trust the process. It can be difficult to do because you're, you're, you're dealing with bureaucracy. And in all bureaucracies, you have variants. And those variants can be very, very dangerous. You know, that individual that slips through the cracks, so to speak. Hmm. But the fact of the matter is, is like I said, the Department of Corrections has in place now programs. So depending on the level of um, Andrew's crime as a drug crime, you know, if he was um, heavy into distribution and sales, then that's going to put him at one level. 
If he's a, um, a dealer, that's going to put him in another level. If he's just a user, you see, and has committed crimes, burglary, robbery, otherwise to support his habit, then that puts him in an entirely different level. So his sentence is going to vary according to those given levels. So he may go to a level two. If he goes to a level two, he's going to have a multitude of programs available to him. He need not worry about gangs or anything else. If he goes to a level three, then that um, potential increases insofar as him becoming involved in gangs or, or getting into more trouble. If he goes to a level four, uh, that's the ultimate survival. That's the maximum security. And uh, particularly if he's a drug user. So what um, typically happens if he's a dealer or he's um, a member of a cartel, then he will continue that activity once he goes to prison. If, if he's a member of a gang, he'll continue that activity when he goes to prison. It's actually required of him. But if he's um, a square, you know, and I don't say that in any derogatory way because I'm a square. I'm the biggest square I've ever known. <laughs> I am. You know, people don't people don't realize that about me. You know, I've never used drugs. I don't drink. Never have. You see, so that's not been a part of of um, my situation that I've had to contend with. My issue's always been violence. So, in how you contend with that violence, and uh, fortunately for me, um, I've been able to do so effectively. You know, but even in addressing that, like I said, uh, I'm. For all the criticisms about embellishments and otherwise, they don't even begin to understand the story or know the story. And I understand that those criticisms usually come from their own experiences. But going back to Andrew and going into prison, he's got a drug beef. I think he'd be fine. What, what would be your biggest concerns, Andrew, going in? I was just going to say, firstly, I just want to clarify, I don't have a religion. So the, the Jew, I'm an atheist. So, so the mm. Jewish thing is, you know, Hitler would still gas me tomorrow if I, you know, if I, yes. regardless of my religious beliefs or anything. So it's an right. ethic, it's sort of an ethnic thing. But uh, I just want to say it's quite a thrill because I'm not, it's not often someone like me, I suppose, has uh, my potential experience in prison discussed by a former drug lord and the founder of the Aryan Brothers. <laughs> so it's really something to put on my report card. <laughs> Just the two of you sitting there discussing what would happen if I went to prison. <laughs> oh, Sean met my mum before. Well, you'll forgive us, Andrew. I mean, I, I, I imagine it seemed like, hey, guys, I'm here. You know, we're talking about you. At no, a party, but you no, no, I don't mind here. it. I don't mind that at all. I love it. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I'm, I'm the most, and I think it's why Sean probably likes having, a, it's a bit of a contrast because I'm the most vanilla guy. Um, I suppose similarly to what you were just saying, I don't drink much either. I don't really do much. I sit around and I watch a bit of TV and I go to sleep. And then Sean brings me into this world where <laughs> these things are being discussed. But yeah, I do what I watch. Look, I watch the prison shows. I've watched Shawshank. I watch all these things and just... I'm a I'm a coward. I really am a coward. And I, you know, what would I do if I was uh, Andy Dufresne? If I was, you know, uh, uh, what would worry me? Well, what happened to Andy Dufresne when he got those two guys? You know, those two or three guys held him down and started um, sexually molesting him. I mean, that that's the biggest worry. Or that thing that everybody says that when you go in, if somebody calls you out, you've got to like step up right away. Not in a million years do I step up. I sit cowering. In the, I wouldn't be like a, a crying. I know they said, was it the Green Mile or Shawshank? When it's like, I think it's Shawshank. The first night, everybody cries on the first night. I think I'd be all right, and you know, and I think I'd, I'd have to try and use charm 
to charm people uh, who would who who might have uh, prejudice about me because I sound quite posh and and then go oh you know what he's all right though I think that's what I would you know they'd think oh he's, he sounds posh and all high and lofty but he's actually he's all right maybe that is how I would get by well I think that's actually an intelligent approach because you're obviously an intelligent person who's um, a savvy as it relates to technology and everything that goes along with that and in mm. this day and age that will carry you a long way but it's also the ability to articulate yourself and you have a certain charisma that would serve you and that ability to articulate yourself to communicate and communicate communication is oftentimes the key and mm. if you can communicate some people say oh he's just manipulating me well yeah um, <laughs> that's really what it comes down to but that's the tools that you have available to you and so that you would probably use so um a heightened sense of awareness as it relates to technology um, a shrewdness as it relates to the ability to communicate and articulate yourself um, an education that um, furthers your goals you know relative mm. to the ability to maneuver within a controlled environment these are all assets and uh, so I, I think you would do just fine He's underestimating himself. He's six foot four. He's got quite a build. I'm looking up at him when I'm, and I'm six foot one. And in terms of the accent then as well, I know a guy who went to an independent school in, in the UK and in America, there was no discrimination because they just hear a clear sounding voice. But he got transferred back to a UK prison where there was discrimination against him because he sounded posh. So your voice, your, your, you, you speak very clearly. And I, I think you'd play the English card. Like I played the English card, you know, you're yes. a goddamn limey cousins from across the pond, that kind of thing. <laughs> and with your height as well, man, you, you, mm. you know, you're not mm. uh, a puny looking person. No, but it can make me a target because when I used to play rugby and I, and I I would see the other team line up at the beginning and they'd all point at me because I was six foot four when I was like 13. Luckily, I stopped growing because it could have mm. I could have gone through the ceiling. But mm. I, I remember they'd all point at me because everyone wanted to be the first to take me down. And yes. I was shit scared. I was <laughs> just absolutely shit scared. But you couldn't show that. So I had to be like, ready to go. But yeah, scared the hell out of me. Well, that's the thing about the male condition, if you will. You know, we talk, we hear a lot about toxic masculinity and associated with that is the idea that if you see a, a large person, you know, that's the challenge. You see, oh, that's, that's the it. one we go after. And yeah. I, I ran across that myself. I was six, four myself, although I think I've lost a half an inch as I, when I, when I hit my seventies, but, uh, you know, and I, when I went into prison, I weighed 285. So, um, it was like, ah. Oh, new challenge not just new meat uh, but new challenge nice. and so th there is that perception but it's what you project also it's your carriage it's your demeanor it's your body language you know in prison particularly um as much as 90 percent of communication is body language and um you know you see that in the wild amongst uh, a wolf pack for instance but uh, in, in human beings we oftentimes forget that we're animals too and um, so body language becomes critical to how we communicate. So if, if you were to say, for instance, posture, then someone might call you on that posturing. They say, oh, man, that's a bluff. I'm going to call them on it. Oof. And so, you know, it's, these are subtleties, nuances, if you will, associated with uh, a controlled environment, but they have application. And um, the thing is, is that there's an old rule that says, um, don't project yourself to be something that you're not. 
You see, if you do, sooner or later, you're going to be called upon to produce based on that projection, and you're going to yeah. fail. You know, you refer to yourself as a coward. I doubt that. But the fact of the mm. matter is, is I admire it also. You see, and the reason I do is that I don't have a problem with it at all. If you were projecting yourself to be anything other than that, you see, that uh, um, I'm Bruce Lee incarnate, mm. uh, th then that would be an entirely different situation. You see, and, and that's you know, one of the things that where people get into trouble because of fear, they come into a controlled environment and they start posturing, they start projecting themselves to be something that they're not. And there's always that fellow that's in the sideline waiting to call him on that. Well, okay, you say you're all this. Let's see. Let's find out. Oh my God. You know what I would do is I would, if I was going down, I would immediately frame Sean for another crime so that he'd be in with me. And then I would yeah. just stick to him like glue because I yeah. know Sean wouldn't let anything happen to me. And he'd, you've read all the books, Sean, haven't you? Confucius and all that stuff. So you would, you'd be in my ear going, just be cool. Yeah, but you're forgetting that Wildman was my bodyguard. In <laughs> we need Wildman enough. You're bigger than me. Wildman's bigger, like both of us put together. Yeah, but you'd know what, you'd help us fight. It'll be you know what it makes for a great movie wouldn't it i think actually because because michael always talks about resources so yeah. the gang is looking at how you would fit in as a resource <laughs> there's a lot of illiteracy you've got an education would they utilize him you know for, for reading legal paperwork helping them write letters things like that michael yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it was mm -hmm. one of the things that um I assume responsibility for changing within the brand is the idea of um, the effective utilization of your resources. And so individuals were seen as resources. In other words, I used to argue that you don't put the knife in the hand of a man that is not a knife fighter, is not a fighter, because you're setting him up for failure. So what you do is you cultivate those attributes, that skill set that he has. If he has an education, you know, if he has... Um, um, an understanding of technology, you know, because technology is used behind the iron gates also. You know, um, cell phones are very common. Back in my day, I used CB radios. I smuggled CB radios in. But Andrew would be utilized, as you correctly point out, Sean, in that capacity. So that if he has an education, he might be put into a clerical position where ducats are issued, you see, to facilitate the, the, the movement of um, not only prisoners, but commodities, you see, and maintain the books associated with that. If he was a drug dealer, dealer as opposed to user, then he would be given um, um, resources to move within the prison system. And he would have protection as it relates to that. So he would not become a member, but he would become an associate. And associates become critical, you know, toward that. You have nucleus, the nucleus of the organization, and you create buffer systems to protect that. And you weigh the, the way that you do that is by the development of what are called cadres. And they're not necessarily members, but these are individuals that are utilized for their aptitude, their potential, and their capacity to get things done. And um, that's just good business. Bloody hell, though. I want to. I want to get onto you know your story a bit, Michael. Just and I mean, how do you feel about that, Sean? Because I know you've you've obviously yeah, done interviews it. before, so I know it'd be retreading old ground a little bit. But what what I mean, what's your story, Michael? How did you end up in prison, and how did you end up getting shot so many times? Mm. Well, I ended up in in prison um, 
as a result of taking the position that uh, two individuals were going to kidnap two little girls for ransom from a man that I really did not know. And I received this information from the cousin of my wife at the time. And um, it just went so contrary to my um, sense of fair play, my sense of ethics, um, my code, if you will, that uh, uh, these two little girls were going to be kidnapped for ransom. Um, um, so I actually asked um, my wife's cousin if he was going to contact this man and let him know. He was working, the cousin was working for the two individuals that were going to facilitate the kidnap. And so he said, no, I can't get involved. I said, well, give me his phone number. And he did. And I called the man and told him. As it turned out, when they attempted to kidnap the two little girls, um, they were waiting for him. And so they took their weapons away from him. They killed him. They buried him. And um, so my crime was in, in um, telling the father of these two little girls who, I should add, was uh, the leader of a cartel, drug cartel. And the two individuals attempting to kidnap knew that he kept large resources of money in his home. So the idea of kidnapping the girls was to obtain that money. They were out on bail from a federal charge. They were going to abscond to Canada, as the story goes. So at any rate, that's what I got caught up in. What, law, I, what, what law did they use mm, to get you on that? Because if you were trying to help the guy with his kids... Mm, yeah. What, what, what's the law? Though? I know there's joint enterprise in the UK. It's, it sounds mm -hmm. similar. Well, back then it was called the felony murder rule. So that if you engaged in a felony, anything that happened subsequent to that engagement, uh, you were held accountable for. Uh, two years ago, the California legislature um, overturned that. And that's why I'm actually back in court. I maintained my innocence at trial and throughout the 45 years in prison. And then two years ago, um, with this uh, legislative enactment, uh, I filed a petition based on the felony murder rule under which I was convicted. So now I'm going back to court. And it, uh, as it stands right now, it looks like it's moving towards exoneration. Um, but the, the point is, is that back then, the felony murder rule allowed the prosecution to convict me of uh, first-degree murder when there were never any allegations that I killed anybody, but because the individuals had been killed and I was associated with that by way of felony, then I was liable for those convictions. But what was the felony? Because you just warned the guy? That's not a felony. No, one of the co-defendants said that I was actually there and that I had assaulted one of the victims. I always denied that, but he was the only one that said that. But that's what they used to say that I committed assault so because I committed assault, which is a three-year conviction, but because I committed assault in the context of these individuals eventually being killed, that I was then guilty of first-degree murder. Did he get a sentence reduction for putting you in it? Um, well, he received favorable treatment, yes. He didn't get a sentence reduction. He got favorable treatment. He was sent off to Disneyland. We call it, it's the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. And... Um, it's called Disneyland by prisoners because uh, only a certain group of individuals go there. Um, typically soft, um, being protected. They don't call it protective custody, but essentially that's what it comes down to um, you know, for that reason. I mean, this is a place where the prisoners have a key to their own cell. 
So that give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Literally a key, their own key to their cell. What was the motivation of the prosecutor to put you in it? Just like more convictions, more kudos? That's a great question. The prosecutor's name was Chatterton. And um, I don't know what his problem was, to be honest with you. I mean, at one point, it seemed as if that was his, his sole intent was to convict me. I don't know if it was because I said that I was innocent. And he honestly believed that I wasn't. Although I don't think that's the case. You know, we reached a point in the trial when, um, you know, it didn't look good for me. So I was asked if I would take a lie detector test. I didn't hesitate. I said, yes, of course. I took two, one administered by the Department of Justice and one administered by the FBI. I got the highest plus scores in the history of polygraphy. I passed them both with flying colors. But then the district attorney went into court and fought against them being entered as evidence. And in California, even to this day, the scientific community does not support the validity of polygraphy, a lie detector. You know, um, it's used in business, you know, to see if you use marijuana, stuff like that. But in a criminal prosecution, particularly when murder's involved, it's not generally accepted as um, reliable. Which is fair enough, I guess, because you, you, if, if you were well-practiced at it, or if theoretically or somebody were a psychopath or whatever, they might not, they might not jolt or jump at the idea of having to lie about anything. I think know, that's so true. Yeah. People accuse me all the time of being too calm. Um, and when, you know, whether that's true or not, I don't know. It's, it's, it's my demeanor. You know, it, I think, is an offshoot of the way that I was raised. Um, you know, comes from dealing with catastrophic events over the course of my youth. And um, so I'm not really excitable, you know, in that. And uh, that disturbs some people, uh, unfortunately. But, um, you know, it's, it's not a measured um, contention mm. on my part. You know, it, mm. it, just, it just simply, it's simply who I am. But, um, you know, th those kind of things oftentimes factor in. Um, but, you know, going back to your contention about polygraphy and, a, you know, a sociopath, a psychopath can be the lie detector. I think so. I do. Um, mm. As well as others who are trained. I think they can also be a, a lie detector. But myself, you know, I was I just turned 22 years old. I knew nothing of polygraphy. You know, I knew nothing of the judicial system. So the idea of being offered a lie detector test, you know, they emphasized FBI, Department of Justice, they'll know if you're lying, young man. And I said, okay, I'll take, I'll take it. Mm. You know, and I, and I did. So I think just the idea, they wouldn't allow that information to come before the jury. You know, that I was not only willing to take the polygraph test, but that I had passed them. Um, but just the willingness alone, I think, is um, indicative of a state of mind on my part. So, you know, to look at me today, given my 45 years of uh, prison experience, to say, well, you know, if you gave me a lie detector test today, uh, would I be more sophisticated in my approach to it? Of course. But back then, at the age of 22, no criminal record, you know, not having been arrested, knowing nothing of the system, to be offered a lie detector test and to agree to take it, I think speaks volumes and should. Um, and, and that's the distinction. But at any rate, that's how I ended up being convicted and going to prison. 
I'm assuming that the cartel boss was grateful for this warning. Did he testify on your behalf at the trial, or has he ever tried to help you throughout the legal process since? No, he actually testified against me. What? Yeah, he attempted to uh, shift all the blame for the murders of these individuals upon me. Uh, he said that uh, the phone call I gave him about his kids going to be kidnapped um, was uh, just a, a plot on my part um, to steal away with the wife of one of the victims. And um, it, it's, it becomes convoluted in that context. I mean, it's a story in and of itself. But he utilized that to, to say that uh, this was all a ploy. You know, the value, I suppose, to this day is that he testified to that and the other co-defendant testified to that, the actual man that admitted to killing both individuals. And when he went before the board to obtain his parole, he actually admitted that the two individuals that were going to kidnap the two little girls approached him a week prior to engage in the kidnap plot with him, with them. So that didn't come out of trial, of course. If it had, then no one would have been able to contend that it was uh, something that I made up. But yeah, he, he, he testified against me in that context. He received a lesser sentence as a result. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the, uh, the nature, uh, if you will, of, of um, prosecution, judiciary. Um, the idea that, you know, when you, you go into a situation like that and you have no experience. I was so naive as to think all I had to do was go in and tell the truth. And that's what I did. And it doesn't work like that. It's a personality contest. There are, there are a multitude of factors involved. We talked about, um, you know, psychopaths and that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I was just wondering, given you say you're very, very calm in all these situations and you seem to handle yourself very well. Uh, I mean, do you have moments when you've been, let's say, crying your eyes out or feeling really worried and scared? Or, or, or do you think you might be closer towards that sort of spectrum of, of sociopathy? I don't. I mean, it's a great question, and I think an appropriate question, given my history. Um, you know, I just had, uh, I did an interview the other day with a, a fella uh, that lives over there with you, James English. Mm -hmm. um, I did a podcast with him, and he asked me, he says, he sort of along the same lines, he said, uh, he said, Michael, do you ever cry? And I said, well, yes. And he said, well, when's the last time you cried? And I said, yesterday. And he said, what? And I said, yesterday. And he said, well, what were the circumstances? And I said, well, I said, you know, my, my wife has this thing about um, helping me evolve in my humanity. And, um, you know, we talk about arrested development insofar as my emotional development going to prison at the age of 22. So everything was kind of shut down. And I wasn't allowed over those 45 years to emotionally develop myself. So that's a process that I've actually engaged in here recently. And one of the things she did prior to my being released uh, was she, I never watched TV, so she purchased me a TV and she wanted me to watch it. And uh, I wasn't real fond of it. But now what she does is she picks a movie and um, human interest story usually. And we sit down and we watch a movie and inevitably there's some emotional content in that. And I end up crying um, as a result of being emotionally moved as a result of that. Um, so, you know, the capacity, you know, where 
I engaged stoicism for so many years. In other words, would not allow myself to cry, regardless. You know, because that idea that um, it's perceived as weakness, and it you know makes you vulnerable, and then you always have somebody lying in wait to capitalize on that perception. So here, in free society, I've been liberated, and I have the ability and the opportunity to engage my emotions. And what becomes important about that is emotional regulation. Um, so that you know that when you are crying, when something moves you, that you understand why, that I understand why. And the blessing is, is that I have a wife um, who understands these things. You know, she um, has a master's in social work. Um, she's a mitigation specialist that works on death row. She understands tragedy. Um, she understands trauma. And that's really what we're talking about. Arrested development is a form of trauma. And so that when you begin to process that trauma and begin to understand um, how your emotional development has been arrested, how that's impacted upon your experience, particularly the lack of experience, your judgment in going forth, in interacting with people, you know, normal people um, on a normal basis. Um, these are all, in many ways, you know, I'm that 22 year old boy, uh, young man, um, emotionally. So it's, it's a matter of um, evolving in my perspectives um, as a result of dealing with the uh, traumas that I encountered over the course of those 45 years and realizing the degree of stoicism that I employed to suppress um, my emotions. So it's, um, there's, there's, Andrew, an enormous learning curve in that. Um, the blessing is that engaging the process and uh, having the benefit of somebody that's with me that um, is compassionate and understanding and knowledgeable about these things. Um, and so that helps me evolve. Um, my goal in life right now is um, to be as fully human as I can possibly be, to be the best human being I can possibly be, and understanding what that means, what I believe and why I believe it, you see. And um, to me, that's important. Um, so in many ways, I'm a child, and I don't mind being a child. Um, I employ the innocence of trust as a child would in many of my endeavors, uh, in my pursuit of understanding myself and others. And um, I enjoy being childlike in that capacity. Michael, you said there was uh, naivety entering mm -hmm. the justice system for the first time in that you mm -hmm. thought you could just go and tell the truth. Mm -hmm. But what about the professional advice? Weren't you getting any, like, who was your lawyer? How did you obtain your lawyer? Was that person giving you professional advice and bringing you up to speed on that it was unrealistic to just go and tell the truth? Unfortunately, no. Um, the attorney that I hired, I was, I was in the process of adopting two little children. And uh, I'd hired this attorney for that purpose. He was a family law attorney. And I didn't know the difference. He was an attorney. So I went ahead and I hired him as my attorney for this murder trial. And he knew nothing about it. Of course, the money he was being given was lucrative. So he didn't tell me that he had no experience in a criminal <sighs> case. This was his first criminal case. So he really had nothing to advise me on. 
And, you know, these are a lot of the issues that uh, as an organization, Live, Learn, and Prosper, that's our organization, that we deal with. We attempt to help people understand what it is to have uh, an attorney, but a proper attorney, one that's well-versed, you know, in the ins and outs associated with the crime that the individual has been accused of and, um, you know, has a track record, so to speak, so that they can advise that person accordingly. And there are a multitude of factors that typically go along with that. Um, but in my case, to answer your question, Sean, no. He was a family law attorney. Um, you know, it, just the amount of money back then, as you want to remember, this is the early 70s. And, uh, you know, $50,000 was what I was giving him. And, you know, to me, that was a lot of money. I was Likewise. thinking you got railroaded because you had a public defender who just wanted to get the no. case closed. No. No, that was not the case at all. And in fact, we learned after the fact that the attorney I did hire had a nervous breakdown during the course of the trial. You know, there was no way to determine wow. that, but he didn't make objections that he was supposed to. I didn't know that, that he was supposed to. You know, I had a prosecutor, then I had two co-defendants who had three attorneys that they had hired um, that were opposing me. So I was going up against four attorneys and then my attorney, you know, and when we went back and we read through the transcripts and everything else, you know, we saw that. I mean, for instance, I'll just give you a brief example. The reason I'm back in court right now is that the um, jury was instructed that if they, they believe that I lie in wait for the purposes of committing assault, that I could be found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. And that's an erroneous, completely erroneous jury instruction. It's used nowhere else. This is an instruction that the district attorney devised himself and that the judge accepted, but that my attorney did not object to. You see, so now I'm back in court. I just got a ruling out of the appellate court that was favorable to me that puts me back in court on these issues. But my goodness, it's been almost 50 years. You see, and I'm just now getting back into court on this very issue of something that my attorney should have been able to catch. It's not just a technicality. You see, this is an erroneous jury instruction. The jury should have never been instructed this way. Hmm. The intent to kill is critical to a conspiracy conviction or a first-degree murder conviction. But they were told that all they had to do was find that I lie in wait to commit assault. There's no intent to kill an assault. And I was convicted. Hmm. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But yeah. back then, I didn't know that. How, how do we get from, from this man who's you know, about to adopt some children and is saving the lives of some others um, and, and all this stuff, how do we get from there to the man who has you know, founded a gang and has been shot 22 times? It's called survival. You see, that's the key. We were talking earlier about you and how you would approach the prison system. So I come mm. into the system. I'm six foot four, I weigh 285. I've got a skill set of martial arts that serves me. And I've demonstrated that um, in jail because my co-defendants were sending what's called torpedoes at me to get me to testify a certain way. <laughs> and so I was fighting these individuals every day and putting them down. And um, I eventually had to put one of my co-defendants down and uh, an issue that he started, but he went into court the next day and said that I tried to kill him. So they put him in protective custody and they kept me where I was at. So now I go into the prison system and I've got all this following me. So, you know, I, I immediately 
um, meet certain challenges, and I address those challenges um, to the best of my ability. You know, I I often talk about the idea that I deplore violence, and I do because I understand violence. But the fact of the matter is, I'm very good at it, and because that's what my elder trained me. You know, in self defense, for that reason, had he not trained me, I don't know that I would have survived. But the fact of the matter is, he gave me a skill set that served me when I arrived in prison. So ultimately, when I say it comes down to survival, you know, I go from from Chino to Tracy to to Old Folsom, and I'm confronted with um, uh, the big boys is the best way to explain it in the big house. So it comes down to survival. You're either going to be controlled or you're going to control. Mm -hmm. And given my skill set. I had the opportunity to control, and I elected to do that. Now, that isn't to say, Andrew, that it didn't um, go contrary to my code of ethics, uh, to my spirituality, because it did. Um, and it was actually that that brought me away from the gang. The same thing that brought me to it brought me away from it, that the idea of serving two fires. You know, my elders had come to visit me at San Quentin, and they just simply told me, you cannot serve two fires. So another way of saying that is that I was living two truths. And, um, you know, that's a Jekyll and Hyde type situation. So I had to choose. And I chose to step away for a multitude of reasons. But in the time that I was there, again, that was my choice. Nobody put me there. I made that decision. I made that choice. And everything that came along with it, including the violence. Don't you think then that if you'd have gone in as a square? I mean, earlier on, you said, you know, if someone's got a skill set, it's going to get called out. If you went in as a squirrel, you may have survived it in a different way that wouldn't have enhanced. Did, I mean, did, did for example, your gang uh, leadership enhance your sentence? Maybe if you'd gone in as a squirrel, you could have avoided that. And it, it, there would have been a different outcome that wouldn't have been as bad as because you said your, your skill set gave you this survival. It was a good thing. But maybe there could have been a positive outcome as a squirrel. Well, and also, what does does square mean? What I think it does, just just some, just not not violent or anything. Well, no, it, it's it's sophistication. You see, is really what it comes down to in your level of sophistication as it relates to that. I couldn't read or write, so I didn't have the education to rely upon. I had a skill set. You see, the ability to fight, and I had uh, a number of events in my life that were catastrophic events. Growing up on a horse ranch, growing up on a reservation, being confronted with flyer, fires and floods and and hunting and and uh, you know the mayhem associated with uh, ranch environment, uh, which is considerable, that gave me um, life experience as it relates to to confronting catastrophic events. Well, prison is a catastrophic event, you see. So I was able to bring to the forefront my experience as it relates to contending with catastrophic events. I didn't have the intellectual capacity, you know. I didn't have the academics associated with that. I had a a um, well honed spirituality, a practicing spirituality, and I had the ability to fight as a warrior and believe myself to be such because that's how I was raised to be a warrior. And um, so I brought those elements to a controlled environment and the ability. To survive in that environment, given that skill set. Now, when I learned to read and write, I took that a little bit further. You see, then yeah. I started developing infrastructure and creating a business, and 
And, um, you know, the more knowledge I acquired, the more I gave that um, knowledge practical application to my environment. I was just going to say, um, well, well, how how does you get? I mean, I'm I'm a bit obsessed with this. How do you get shot so many times and, and survived? And I guess I also want to know. And maybe it's a bit of a silly question, but like, what does it what does it feel like to be shot? What's the what is that feeling? Yeah, I don't think there are silly questions, Andrew. To be honest with you, so you ask any question you want. Hmm. Um, uh, going to the end of that question, how you survive. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you, you learn immediately like at Old Folsom. You know, it's a big yard and it's open warfare. And the people have knives and you're stabbing each other and you got gunners on the rail, as many as four at a time, and you're caught in the crossfire. So the key is to keep moving. Again, it's a dance. And um, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. So when you get hit, you know, hopefully it's not a vital shot. Hopefully it's not in the head, doesn't hit the heart, doesn't hit the lung, doesn't hit the liver or kidney, spleen, so on. And I've been very fortunate in that. Um, so it, it's a matter of utilizing that skill set, that dance, that movement, knowing how to knife fight so that you're not stationary, standing. People have this conception that a knife fight is, you know, something that they saw on TV with Jim Bowie and, and Davy Crockett. Um, it doesn't happen like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, coming forward into that survival mechanism uh, is the idea of um, knowing your environment, knowing your terrain. Um, and the virtual reality that I mentioned previously in the brain, and how that adapts to the environment towards your survival. Um, in other words, the brain doesn't have to take in the environment time and time and time again. By way of example, the first time I went to the yard and was involved in an altercation, everything happened very quickly. By the fourth time I went out to the yard, everything slowed down to slow motion because my brain had adapted to that environment. So it's understanding those things, how they happen and why they happen, and how you can best utilize those uh, to your benefit. So how it feels to be shot? <clears throat> well, it depends. It depends on the uh, caliber, um, you know, the Mini-14 is a fairly hot round. It was developed during World War II for sniper action. It's meant to pass through the body. Um, in my case, that's happened, but um, I had one particular instance because of the angle of the trajectory from a 50-foot high wall in my movement, I was hitting the back and it lodged next to my spine as opposed to passing through. Um, that's the only way I can explain it. 30 years later, they removed it. But um, it knocks you down. It knocks the wind out of you. Um, it, um, you know, the first thing you're thinking if you stay conscious um, is, you know, what happened. And then you realize almost immediately, I can remember being shot in the side of the head with what was called a long range stinger round. Now, that was from the tower, and that was 50 feet down. And uh, the projectile was such that it hit me in the side of the head and peeled my scalp. It literally lifted my whole scalp up, hair and all. And um, I remember thinking to myself immediately that somebody had sundied me, punched me from the side. That's how hard it hit me, uh, because it actually buckled my knees. Um, and then I recovered, 
and turned to confront my opponent, and there was no opponent there. And then realizing that I had been shot, so I had to turn back to the opponent I was dealing with, um, just by way of giving you an example. And so the feeling of that was like being sucker punched. Uh, being hit in the body is an entirely different thing. It knocks the wind out of you, drops you like a sack of potatoes. If you stay conscious, you realize you've been shot. There's not much pain. Um, depending on being stabbed, it depends on what you're being stabbed with. Um, if it's uh, a weapon that's been finely crafted, um, then it's razor sharp. And you know what it feels like to cut yourself with a razor blade, right? So mm, intensify that 100 fold. Uh, that's what it feels like. Um, so if it's a if it's a rougher weapon, it's more rugged, it's not as well um, manufactured, um, then that can be painful. Um, you know, because it's like being stabbed with a sharp stick. Um, you you feel it going in and you feel it coming out. And um, you know, the biggest thing you hope for, because back in the day they had what they called bone crushers. And this was a huge weapon, well over 12 inches, honed back on both sides, probably two inches thick, with a big old handle on it. And sometimes they two-handed. And if they ran it into you, the thing that you hoped for was that, one, it didn't hit anything vital, and two, that it would actually hit bone, because oftentimes a bone crusher, if it hit bone, would stick in the bone. And that gave you an opportunity to take it away from your opponent. Sounds pretty gruesome, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, again, people say, oh, he's exaggerating and he's embellishing. You don't even know mm. the gist of it. If people had any idea, you know, they wouldn't make such silly, childish allegations because that's what they are. Um, you know, you don't really want to put it all out there because it is gruesome. And, um, you know, first and foremost, I don't think anybody really likes talking about that. But if it has educative value towards people understanding the reality of the situation, then, then it has value. So one of the motivations then to get big muscles was to absorb these shots so that you don't die? Was that, is that true? Um, no, that's only part of it, Sean. I mean, it helps. You know, that's not your intent. I mean, your intent is your strength. Um, you know, I used to be able to grab hold of a man and break his bones. Uh, with one hand and have done that. Um, you know, they used to give us heavy bags and I used to break the heavy bags just by striking them. Um, I had that much power, that much strength. You know, um, we had a 500 club where we bench pressed, there was three of us that bench pressed over 500 pounds. You know, people take issue with uh, the stories I've told about lifting weights and bench pressing. They say, oh, he couldn't have done that. Look, any man that's a power lifter, weight lifter that can't live, lift twice his body weight, is not a power lifter. Ask any power lifter. Hmm. You know, at one time I weighed 310 pounds. So I was pushing double that on the bench. It was no big thing. You see, the, the ones that used to impress me were the guys that weighed 150 pounds and were pushing 400 pounds. That's well over twice their body weight. You see, those are the ones that impress me. Those are the ones to watch. But big guys like me, nah, you know, it um, so you you develop you work out with weights to develop your strength because strength in battle um, is key. You know that ability to to backhand somebody or to grab hold of their arm and break their arm is it can, can become critical. 
you know, towards surviving, you know, to strike somebody one time with the heel of their hand to the, to the chin and, and knock them out or slap them to the side of the head and knock them out because that's a powerful punch that has value. You see, so that's why you're doing it. The fact that you have that muscle mass on you when you're shot certainly helps. And when you're being stabbed, it certainly helps because I've been both. Um, and so it makes a difference. You know, if you did not have that mass, then if I look at my bony old ass right now, and if I were to be stabbed the way that I'd been stabbed back then, I wouldn't have survived it. How did you get the food to sustain that weight? Because I know in Sheriff Joe Power's jail, he didn't give us much to eat. Yeah, you know, people talk about that all the time. What they didn't understand is that back then we had our own butcher shop. We had our own dairy. You know, we had our own eggs coming in. I used to sit down and eat 10 raw steaks a day with a gallon of milk and eat a flat of 30 raw eggs before my workout. You see, people say, oh, I did, they didn't have that kind of protein. These are people that are talking about contemporary prison where everything is processed and you're not getting nutritional food. You know, you can buy protein powders. You can buy vitamins. All that stuff is available to people now, you know, toward their development. They don't have the weights anymore, though. So they don't really need that. But back then, oh, yeah. I mean, we had sufficient protein, you know, like I said, uh, you know, and sometimes I do that twice a day if I did a double workout. You know, they weren't big steaks. They were they, the steaks back then where they had their own butcher shop, but they'd run them through a tenderizer. And um, so, you know, they were, mm, I don't know, seven inches long and maybe four inches wide, um, maybe a half inch thick, maybe thinner. But, you know, you eat 10 of those raw. And uh, like I said, uh, half a gallon at least of whole milk that just came off the dairy. You got a flat of 30 raw eggs. That's a lot of protein. And so you're going in and you're doing a four-hour workout with a lot of weight. Then you're resting, and then you may go back and do another four-hour workout. That's a lot of iron that you're pushing. That's what people don't understand. So in the competition for size then, were steroids prevalent? Some people did later use steroids. I know of individuals who did use steroids and became humongous. Um, but I never used it, and I never knew anybody that I lifted with that used, it, used steroids. You know, you're only going to get so big. Your bone structure is such, your, your muscularity is such, you only have so many uh, red twitch fibers and white twitch fibers. You can convert um, white to red, but you can't convert red to white. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these all become relevant. Uh, depending on you know, how you're lifting iron and um, you know your your chest can actually become so big your arms so big that you have to swing around your chest and i actually had that happen uh, and i thought you know i remember i had this conversation with td because td had this huge barrel chest they called him the hulk he was a big old boy but my chest had become so big that given my style of fighting that I found myself having to swing around my chest because my chest was in the way, <laughs> you know, and my arms were so big, you know, same thing. And when you have that much muscle on you, you tire, you know, your stamina isn't as great. Your endurance isn't mm -hmm. as great. So whatever you do, you better do it within the first 30 seconds, because if it goes beyond that, you're going to fatigue just from the muscle weight. And so it occurred to me, this really isn't beneficial. So I started dropping muscle weight. And I focused more on becoming lean. And you know, having the muscle mass still, 
but with within a lean context. I've got a picture somewhere I'll have to shoot to you that'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about. And I'm um, in San Quentin at the time. So I'll get that to you and you can post it if you want or but at least it'll give you for your own edification that understanding. Wow. And um, in fact, this particular picture, I have an eye patch on that's because I'd lost the sight in my eye. Um, I had a guard drop kick my head with steel toed shoes. And while I was chained up on the floor. Oh. So I'll just tell you now that's what that eye patch is about. Wow, maybe we'll get to that next time then because we're at two hours now. And a huge thank you both you guys for your time. Michael, do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you? Well, you know, I'm coming up with my own podcast here in um, very hmm. short time. The, uh, like I tell people all the time, I don't have access to the internet. I'm able to talk to you today only because I have a studio engineer that facilitates it, third party, and I have permission for that. But I can't get on the internet and check email. I can't even go on my own website. But I do have a nonprofit called Live, Learn, and Prosper. I do have a book coming out and so on. And, and I'll be pushing those things here in the near future. But uh, the thing that um, I most appreciate about this opportunity to come on and talk to uh, you and Andrew and others that we've done podcasts with is that uh, to avail the listener the opportunity to ask questions. And I encourage them to do so. Um, if they have a question, by all means, ask, and I'll do my best to answer it. Um, and I find that's oftentimes the case. And if there's anything that they want to know more about, uh, then let you know, and we'll do it, Sean. Um, it's really that simple. It's, it's about, you know, educating. Certainly, there's, you know, the sensationalism, and some people like that, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, you know, I, I don't have a problem with telling war stories in context. Uh, I think that's important. I think they should have some illuminating or educated value associated with them. And hopefully that's the case. Um, but I have a deep appreciation uh, for you, for Andrew coming on today, and for your listeners. And um, so we say, All that we do, we do so that we may live as a people. We've got a deep appreciation for you, Michael. And perhaps if that is the goal, then is to get more questions answered, perhaps a live Q&A. Mm -hmm in the future and we can do yeah. that you know real time and, and and take all those questions if that's something you'd be up yeah. for yeah yeah absolutely i think it's a great idea now, i'm always up for that you know when people stop asking questions and i know I, okay i'm done i've done enough that's it you see and i can move on to other things but as long as people have questions then i'm available to answer them it's really that simple it's all about right. giving back all right, well, viewers, look forward to that. I'm going to try and incorporate Bruno into okay. that because he was supposed to be with us tonight. Andrew oh. has graciously stepped up with 20 minutes' notice. <laughs> tell, do you want to tell the viewers, Andrew, where they can find and support you? Well, first, I'd say, yeah, thank you so much, Michael, for, for coming on. It's been so great speaking with you. Sean, not so great speaking to you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, if, if at some later date you happen to be watching something like this on my channel, do go and check out Sean Atwood's channel. I'm co-hosting with him every week. Go and subscribe to that lovely man's channel. Uh, and also, you know, Michael's podcast. Do go check that out um, and all of that. And if you're watching this on Sean's, please come over to On The Edge with Andrew Gold. That's my channel. And uh, just say, if you say hello or something, say you came over from from sean i always like hearing that yes so michael and andrew's links will be in the description box below this video so please support their work 
And huge thank you again, guys, for staying on for so long. Mm. And huge thank you to the viewers as well for joining us. Put any questions in the comments and take care out there wherever you are in the world. We will see you next time. Thank you for watching. Cheers. Thank you again, especially to you listeners, actually. I'm always thanking all the, the guests and things. Thanks to the listeners. You've probably listened to both episodes of this now. That's two hours of listening. It's hard work, isn't it? So, uh, no, seriously, thank you for sticking with me. Uh, things are, are going well with the podcast, particularly on YouTube. We're uh, up to 40 to 50, probably by the time this comes out, thousand subscribers. I do Q&As on there every 10,000 subs or so, and, and I'll be putting some of those out on here. But uh, do go follow on the YouTube page if you want to keep up with the Q&As or be involved in them. You can sort of watch while I'm doing them and you type in questions and things like that. Um, what else is going on? Well, sign up on patreon.com slash Gold if you get the chance or whatever thank you to my newest patrons and to those people who have left nice reviews on apple podcasts that is a big help when you do that that's all you've been on the edge see you next time